Hello, listeners. We're doing something special for this month's episode. In October of 2023, we at Entitled hosted a live recording here at the University of Chicago. I was joined on stage by renowned legal scholar Genevieve Lakier to have a conversation about free speech in social media. In other words, it was very relevant to our current season about the right to free expression. We're going to share that recording with you this month, and we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks to everyone who listened to our podcast this last year. We don't make money off the show. It's a labor of love to make important research interesting and accessible to the wider audience. But your support is critical to helping us to continue that mission. The data shows that the number one way that podcasts grow their audience is through word of mouth. So if you could please just tell a family member, a friend, or a coworker to listen to our show to try it out, it would help us immensely. Thanks again. We've been covering free speech issues this year, and that's what we're going to do today. I'm so pleased to have my colleague Genevieve Lake here, who's the, one of the foremost authorities on the First Amendment and on social media and their interaction, to speak with us today. And we hope we'll eventually bring it back to campus issues, because the social media shapes everything, including free speech on campus. This week is the launch of the Forum on Free Inquiry and Expression at the University of Chicago. Professor Lakier is on the advisory board of that, and I'm the faculty director, I guess is my title. So with that long introduction, let me turn to uh, Professor Lakier. Thank you so much for being here, Genevieve. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. And I thought I might start with um, a very simple conversation we had a while back about the social media in general. You know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on all these things. And at some point, I just decided the social media was bad. I think our colleague Eric Posner called Twitter a hate machine uh, because it stirs up so many emotions in people. And, um, you know, I was sort of complaining about it to you. He said, no, 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 there's lots of good things going on here. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of social media. I will say I use Twitter, or I guess we're supposed to call it X now, (laughs) uh, less than I used to, so I've diversified my social media use. Uh, But the, the thing about social media is that it represents a genuinely more democratized public conversation. And that has serious downsides, as we all know, but it also has a lot of upsides. And I'm generally a Democrat. I think people have a lot of creativity and a desire to speak and participate and engage in all these kinds of playful and interesting ways. And you see all of that on social media. And so in general, it's just another chapter in the unfolding evolution transformation of the public sphere. And I'm really happy to see, you know, so much content creation happening by all kinds of people who previously would have not had any chance to have their voices heard by a large audience. Yeah, that's really nice. It's like uh, sort of framing it in the University of Chicago way. What would John Dewey say if he was around to see this? And I He think, would be a total fan. Yeah, I yeah. think maybe so. I mean, right? I think he'd be a little shocked, you know, what is going on? But <laughs> I think he would generally like it. Yeah. So, but in a way, what you're suggesting is it puts much more responsibility on the individual to uh, wade through things, to curate their own media content. And that's asking a lot, right, given that there's so much out there. Yeah, it it enables much more niche conversations. Mm -hmm. But, of course, there always were niche conversations. Even when we had magazines and books, people had to figure out what books to read, what magazines to subscribe to. So you have more choice. It's maybe more overwhelming. In that sense, it's more responsibility. But I, I think it's a little bit of a fiction to think that people didn't have responsibility before. And also, again, from democratic principles, surely, you know, another way to say that is it empowers people Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be more autonomous when they're thinking about the speech environment they want to participate in. And that, again, is for good and for ill. Right. So I guess I want to turn to how this changes how we should regulate this. So the First Amendment, as conventionally understood, is really a creature of the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the famous themes there is... You know, if you don't like what someone says, the remedy is more speech. Just respond. That's kind of the way we think about it. It's the way we think about it within university contexts, I think. Does the social media change that 
Do people think that the social media should change that basic response? And what do you think? People definitely think that. So, you know, social media is only the latest in the parade of technological transformations in communication that have been profoundly changed how people speak and listen and imagine themselves as part of a community. There was the telegraph, there was the radio, there was TV, there were video games, remember those, that were going to bring down civilization in the 90s. <laughs> Every time you have one of these new technologies, there's a sort of early utopianism where the view is, I think, understandably, wow, this makes it so much easier to communicate. This is going to produce the true democracy we never had, right? It's going to, what they said about the telegraph, it's going to reduce space and time entirely and make us all sort of together. Same thing with radio, same thing with social media. Okay, and then there's this period when you realize it's not going to do that, and also it's subject to the ordinary logic of capitalism in that there's large profit-making private companies regulating the stuff for their own good and people are being excluded and then there's people are being seduced. You know, there was this worry about radio, the intimacy of the voice in the home, you know, different from newspaper was going to lead uh, our teenagers astray. Huge anxiety about it. So then there's this pessimism and then there's a sort of like regulatory compromise where you get used to the warts and you like the good stuff and it becomes normalized. With social media, I think we had the utopian period in the 90s and early 2000s, and now I think we're in the pessimistic phase. And so there are a lot of people who say, whoa, 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 this new technology, it's so different from everything we've had before, we have to fundamentally change our free speech principles, or we have to regulate it in a way that we haven't regulated anything else. And I guess as this long wind-up has suggested, I'm skeptical of the claim that we need to fundamentally reshape anything. It doesn't mean we don't have to change some things. But I guess on that point, I will say that I don't think it's true that the free speech, the system of free speech in America has ever really relied on more speech being the cure for harmful speech. I think what it has relied on is private gatekeepers. So the government has been restricted and again, still more or less depending on the venue. So when it comes to regulating, you know, the professions or regulating the universities or regulating schools, the government's always had different kinds of power than when regulating the public sphere. But the government has been somewhat restricted in its ability to get rid of harmful speech and has been it's in this context that it's supposed to allow a thousand flowers to bloom. But private gatekeepers, private institutions like the University of Chicago, the journalism, the institutional press in particular, uh, the professional guilds, all of these have played an incredibly important role in figuring out what speech is okay. You know, think about the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. Mm -hmm. Not all the news there is. <laughs> there is a inherent view that the editors of the New York Times are making judgments about what it is fit for the public to see. And so we've never had, a, I don't think, an unregulated public sphere, anything like it. So what's new about social media, I think, is not so much that there's new technology, that we've always had new technology, not even the democratization of participation. I think that's on the whole a good thing, although it intensifies the downsides also because there's so many more people speaking. It's that it is undermining the traditional role of gatekeepers. And so it's really, I think, forcing us to think about, well, <laughs> what role do we want the government to play if we don't if we can't rely upon the traditional actors do what do we want to do about the traditional actors what what do we think about the private social media companies can they fit the role so as i hear you talk about that historical continuities you know you have a, always a role for private actors always some role for government but mm -hmm. that's the thing we worry a lot about but then you also mentioned the role of professions professional norms guilds, I think you've called them in writing. Our profession. Our profession, academia, academics. And I worry or I wonder about that in our current moment where all institutions seem to be being degraded. We're losing, all of us sort of losing our institutional legitimacy before the public. And then you're left only with the four people who own the big companies. Yeah. Do you worry about that kind of imbalance in terms of the regulatory dynamics where we are now? Well, I guess I'll say, I think we have never worried sufficiently about private power when it comes to the 
power of these private companies when it comes to the speech environment. I think the networks, the radio and television networks, have traditionally played an enormously important role in figuring out what's fit to be seen and heard, and in a way that I think First Amendment doctrine has maybe too uncritically assumed, such that it's not even sort of part of the conversation. We just take that for granted. Uh, just like I worry about the TV and radio broadcasters, I, yes, I worry about Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk making all the decisions about the public sphere. And of course, this is intensified because the professions are uh, facing a legitimacy crisis. But again, I think that's kind of complicated because the professions have been sexist, racist, exclusionary, overly hierarchical, right, all those things. And so there's a way in which what we're facing right now is an internal revolt, a sort of a democratization in some, or a demand for something else. Uh, when we're thinking about gatekeeping, which I don't think is necessarily bad, but we're in this period now where there's nothing else. The old stuff is in crisis, and so we are relying upon the wisdom of these billionaires to decide what goes and what doesn't go in the speech environment. Oh, and also the advertisers, who have always played an incredibly important role. And so I agree, this is a tricky, difficult uh, time, but I, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to be the Pollyanna. I think there's ways to see this as really positive because we are pushing towards a sort of a new theory of gatekeeping maybe that could be better. I wonder if Elon Musk is doing us all a favor of being, by being sort of so goofy uh, in some sense and really exposing the fact that this really is just kind of one guy's decisions and why would we trust this person? Yeah, I mean, there's a way to think about what's happening now as it's so dramatic. You know, there's so few really powerful billionaires. It's like a caricature, right? Like mm -hmm. if you could think about the evil billionaire or the <laughs> controversial billionaire, like Elon Musk would be a pretty good figure in a movie. It's a bit like where you think, you know, if you made a movie about this, people would be like, oh, that's so overstated. Yeah. It would never be that, you know, obvious, but this is real life. So there's a way in which social media era, you know, it's just exposing in this very dramatic and unavoidable way, I think, tensions that have long existed in the system, and that could be good, but it also, given the polarization and fracturing of our politics, it's not easy to see how we're going to get out of this situation. What sort of, it's kind of an abstract question, what, what sort of percentage of the things going on out there are hashtag me too movement kind of things where you really have that democratization and that, you know, advancement, undermining of traditional hierarchies in ways we think are generally pretty yeah. good versus, you know, mobilization of white nationalism and such. Is there any way to get a, a handle on the, the relative scale of these things or is it just all moving so fast we just don't know? I don't know. I, I, well, on the one hand, you know, it'd be interesting to think about Me Too versus something else. But of course, what you think of as valuable democratization is going to be a matter of judgment. You know, the white nationalists would say, this is also democratization. And I think in a way it is, right? The sort of white nationalists had been excluded from the mainstream media. That voice had gone underground. Now it didn't disappear. The John Birch Society, for example, communicated its message quite effectively using its pamphlets and its newsletters and its uh, meetings, but it took a lot of effort and it was speaking to a very niche audience. And so social media has been great for them. But I think it's democratization. It's just not the kind of democratization we would like. That's a really good point. I mean, this is something I deal with in comparative constitutional law. So, you know, we all often say, I'm for free speech, but I don't like hate speech. And yeah. I think no one's really in favor of hate speech, no serious person. But then the question is, who decides? And one of the things we've learned when we look at Europe and other societies which have these hate speech laws is that you know, they're not necessarily neutrally applied. For example, in Europe, it's generally, it's not uh, the AFD or something mm -hmm. in Germany, which gets marginalized. Those voices are let in, tends to be the, you know, radical Muslims and the people who are already marginalized who get, are subject to these um, constraints. So government power is tricky, obviously, when it, when it comes to being the gatekeeper. Yeah, I mean, and this is one of the implications of a rights framework. 
the idea of rights, at least liberal rights, is that they are neutral as, as applied to the particular identities of viewpoints of the rights holders, right? You're supposed to apply your free speech principles in a generally neutral way, which means to the extent that they are following the rules, the white nationalists can get brought in along with the Black Lives Matter activists. Now, of course, there's always unevenness in how these rules get applied and also how you write the rules because, of course, they can have disparate effects. So I think one of the conservatives' beefs has been, I think, the opposite to the question underlying the research agenda you were setting out, which is, you know, maybe there's just way, way more uh, advantage to the white nationalists than to the Me Too activists. I think, you know, we hear all these criticisms from those on the right about uh, anti-conservative bias on the social media platforms, and there's been quite a bit of research about this, and the research has discovered basically nothing. If anything, the platforms have been bending over backwards, uh, in response to these, you know, valuable criticisms, and I think desire to carry favor with those uh, on the right in power. If anything, the rules are applied in a way that's uh, somewhat pro-conservative. But the reason I think why the criticisms persist is because the rules are written in a way that, and here yeah, we're speaking about private gatekeepers, really, um, that presume certain kinds of civility norms, certain ways of interacting in public that are appropriate. And they think of the, these, I think, Facebook, Meta, and X, oh my God, all the names are changing. They're changing X, all the time. You can't keep track. Uh, and Blue Sky, right? They think of these rules as neutral. We're just setting up basic ground rules for how you speak in public. But for some participants, they're not neutral. They prevent them from speaking in a, in a way that is most effective and, and natural to them. And I think we've long had this problem. I mean, when we when we go back to radio and the way in which radio was regulated, the Fairness Doctrine, and which also had a whole set of civility norms, it was very hard for those on the right. They were much more subject to regulation under these rules, even though the people who wrote the rules thought they were neutral. So I think we're facing the same today in that... In theory, everyone has their same rights when they're being regulated by the social media companies. There's lots of inconsistency and bias, but it doesn't look like it's systematically biased uh, against any particular group. And yet the effect might be to advantage some groups, those who speak in a more civil, respectable way, over others. I wanted to turn to the question of how the state interacts with these companies. Obviously, we have some antitrust line of um, sort of critique or, and, uh, mm -hmm. and regulation, but there's also, of course, Section 230, and now these state-level bills to try to get the social media companies to be neutral as between conservatives and, uh -huh. and liberals. Can you just describe what those bills are doing, and, and are they constitutional? Sure. Um, what's the status of those things? Well, Section 230 is a product of, I think, the first way, the sort of early period of Internet utopianism where there was this desire to empower the companies to act as gatekeepers. The view here was that we don't want to stifle innovation, we don't want to impose crippling liability on these new startup powerful companies, these emerging um, innovative companies. And so what Section 230 says is the companies cannot be liable under ordinary tort laws or defamation, the, the laws that regulate speech in other media, um, as publishers of information or posts that are generally third parties. So like if they're writing something, if they're posting something, if they're designing stuff on their site, they can be liable for defamation or for misleading information that leads to harm or whatever it may be. But if they're just hosting somebody else's speech, they cannot be. And so in a way, they are being immunized from liability for the speech that they host or that they carry in the same way that FedEx is immunized as a common carrier for the speech or packages or whatever it is that it carries. If something happens to your parcel when FedEx is carrying it, or if there's a, a, illegal to ship what, these chemicals across state lines and FedEx ships it but didn't know that there were chemicals, FedEx is not going to be on the hook. They're a common carrier. Um, what's unique about Section 230 is that there was always a carrot and a stick when it came to common carriage regulation when we talk about telegraphs and telephones and postal services, which is that 
in exchange for the requirement, the, the absolution of liability, they have a requirement of non-discrimination. So you have to carry everything. And that's the bargain. And Section 230 gives you one half of that bargain, but not the other. There is no requirement under Section 230 for the social media companies to host or carry everything, but there is still immunity from liability. And so the criticism, particularly on the right, but not only on the right, is that Section 230 is this aberration. It gives the social media companies a kind of free pass that no other media company has ever enjoyed. Book publishers are on the hook as publishers. Now, the rules for a publisher are somewhat different than the rules for a speaker when we're talking about defamation and other speech torts, but they can absolutely be on the hook. Same thing for radio companies. And then there's this other class of actors who are not on the hook, but they have a duty of non-discrimination. Social media companies, they just have their, their cake and they get to eat it too. They have no obligations of non-discrimination, but they have this immunity from liability. And so in response to this, states now, uh, Republican legislators in states like Texas and Florida, and I think depending on what happens with these laws, many other states have enacted statutes that impose, I guess I would say quasi-common carrier kind of obligations on the companies that say, Essentially, okay, if you're going to get your immunity from liability under Section 230, we're going to require you to carry some speech even if you don't want to. We're going to make you closer to the FedEx kind of model. The question is whether they can do that when we have First Amendment claims that are being raised by the companies themselves. But that is the ambition. It sounds a little bit like the old Reagan era or pre-Reagan era fairness doctrine on the radio, right? Where like you had to cover both sides. Isn't that kind of the the goal here, or the, the bills I know are not necessarily uh, models of legal drafting, but isn't the intention to be like, there's bias against conservatives, we have to make sure that they get their airtime too. Yeah, I think they're trying to avoid the fairness doctrine. It's interesting, the comparison, because of course conservatives hate the fairness doctrine, because mm -hmm. it was often, they, they, they think, and to some degree true under Kennedy and Johnson, used against conservative uh, radio hosts. So they hate the fairness doctrine. It has something of the same vibe though, and it's amazing to see, you know, I've been teaching First Amendment for a while, and you can see this real shift in how, in the, I guess, the political valence of different cases. So there's this case, Red Lion, the FCC, which is this famous, I used to say infamous, Supreme Court case upholding the constitutionality of the Fairness Doctrine. It's a Warren Court decision. It's a very different era in Supreme Court jurisprudence. It was hated, has been hated by generations of conservatives. And now you're starting to see conservatives citing it as support for these new laws. So for sure, the, the valence of this has flipped and there are these new analogies being drawn between the Fairness Doctrine and these new laws. I guess I would say the defenders of the law say it's different than the Fairness Doctrine in that the Fairness Doctrine was pretty vague. It still empowered the private broadcasters to make the decision about what was fair. You know, I think it was like a fair representation of respectable voices. And then the FCC, which was the agency that... Uh, ran the whole show, had this also very vague, very discretionary power to decide whether or not the companies were adhering or not adhering to the fairness doctrine. And so there's been a lot of, and I think justifiable criticism of the way that's worked because it gave powerful actors a lot of discretionary power that they could use in all kinds of ways. And so there's lots of reason to think that the FCC used its power to do a lot of like, what's known now as jawboning, to pressure the private companies into acting in particular ways. For example, there's a famous case involving an FCC chairman where he used the threat of license revocation, which was sort of possible under the Fairness Doctrine, um, to get the networks to agree to a family-friendly policy that they wouldn't show any sex or violence between 6 and 8 p.m., the primetime hours. And there's lots of reason to think they did not want to do this, but the FCC managed to effectuate this really significant policy change by using this sword over their head. So there are all kinds of, pro you know, we might not like that kind of secret work around the First Amendment constraints, so there were all these problems with the fairness doctrine. And then the question, I think, now is, do those same problems apply to these new laws? 
which don't empower a regulatory agency. It's all about courts figuring out. They impose these, what look on their face like simpler, there's a question mark there, simpler obligations. So under Texas, the platforms are prohibited from viewpoint discriminating. And under Florida, they are required to carry a political candidate speech and the speech of journalistic enterprises, and then disputes are going to be litigated in state court. And so these are, I think the drafters would say, you know, much clearer, and it's just going to be courts, it's not going to be agencies, not subject to the same problems of abuse and discretion. I'm not so sure. You know, the question of what counts as a viewpoint discriminatory policy is a, or act is a, not a simple question to answer. And there's lots of questions about, as you said, the drafting of these bills. So they may end up having similar problematic effects as the fairness doctrine, but that's the vision. We're going to do something like a non-discrimination rule. It's going to be litigated in court, it's going to be relatively simple, and it's going to make the social media companies more like common carriers. And what's the future of those cases? Where, where, where there are they legally right now? Pretty exciting. So there was immediate First Amendment challenge by uh, NetChoice, which is a trade group. It represents the largest of the social media platforms. They brought a challenge against the Florida law and against the Texas law. And the 11th Circuit, which was reviewing the Florida law, ultimately held that the must-carry obligations, the part that makes it most like a common carrier, uh, were unconstitutional because they constrained the expressive freedom, the editorial discretion of the platforms too much. Because these aren't common carriers. They make these kinds of speech regulating decisions all the time and we want to empower that. This was the 11th Circuit's view or the First Amendment protects that. But the Fifth Circuit reached the opposite conclusion. It, this, so there was this major circuit split. It said the Texas law, totally fine because it's not restricting speech, it's just restricting censorship. Obvious uh, distinction, not, not at all question begging. Um, <laughs> and so uh, this was also, both decisions were appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court granted cert. So it's going to go before the Supreme Court. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It's hard to predict where the justices are going to come down uh, on this question. Is this something where there's a clean division between conservative and liberal justices like we've become used to, or is it possible we'd get some odd coalition or a unanimous decision or something like that? Oh, I think it is so hard to predict. I think it's absolutely possible we get a strange coalition. Mm. The politics here, in part because there's been this flipping, you know, the positions that used to be coded liberal are now being taken out by conservatives, but then there's some members of the court, for example, Justice Kavanaugh, who has written in the past in a, in a vein that is a kind of what I call old school conservative, where the vision is that what the First Amendment protects is the right of private property owners, including private corporations, to make their own choices about the speech that flows on their platforms. That's how the First Amendment protects against government tyranny by empowering private actors. You know, he's going to be in a bind because the arguments now being made on behalf of these conservative lawmakers from Texas and Florida is that, no, 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 that's not actually what the First Amendment does, at least when it comes to social media. It means something very different. And is he going to find a social media exception? Meanwhile, there are liberals like Justice Kagan who might worry about minority exclusion and be sensitive to the kinds of discrimination arguments being made. I don't know. She, in an earlier sort of procedural decision on a stay, she joined with three conservatives in a voting block. Now, it, it came up on the shadow docket. It may have been her concern about the sort of procedural form in which this uh, motion was being raised before the court that led her to join with, I think it was Alito, Thomas, but uh, it raised these questions about, oh, wow, is there now going to be a, this weird coalition between Kagan and the conservatives? So who knows, really? I'm sure your local, uh, you know, local online betting shop is taking uh, taking over-unders on this and such. And how many votes does it the, does It's pretty get? exciting yeah. for, for free speech land. Yeah, for free speech. Yeah. Free speech nerds love this. Yeah, you know, they're, they're speculating. It's like our World Cup. I'm so excited also to talk to you about campus, you know, so I'm really old. I typed my first college paper on an actual typewriter. That's how old I am. Um, you know, now, of course, we're in this world, and especially maybe the last decade or so, 
where social media is so pervasive that I perceive something of a kind of panopticon that people are in. Everyone is kind of thinking, oh, you know, if I say this in class, someone might dox me on the social media. They might... I've actually talked to my professor's colleagues, unnamed colleagues, who were worried about our recordings when we had Zoom era recordings because they thought, oh, someone could take something I say out of context, put it up, and your career is destroyed, all that stuff. So we seem to be in an environment where it's really changing society because of the pervasive fear. I just have to use the term. You know, I guess my question for you is, do you see it that's that same way? And, and what, what can we do about it? We, after all, are the forum for free inquiry and expression. We need to advance an environment in which everyone feels free to express themselves and try out ideas and make mistakes and not worry that they're going to uh, end their career at the age of 19 because of something they say in class. Yeah, I see it similarly. Mm. I mean, I guess another thing that has happened with social media, along with all the good things that I was talking about earlier, is that I think it is changing the line between public and private spheres or public and private life. So the good thing, I guess, of a heavily gatekeeped public sphere is that there's lots of stuff that's outside of it. The conversations you have in your kitchen, the conversations you have with friends, the conversations you have at the office, and the conversations you have in school, they're like very far outside the august pages of the New York Times. And this is like this private sphere where you can have lots of communication and you can um, talk to your friends and express lots of controversial uh, ideas. And it's going to stay in a relatively private sphere. And you're only going to be speaking to those who are you know, sympathetic or understand. There's going to be intimacy. Uh, you know, People are going to understand what you mean when you say even things in an ill-considered Ill way. One of the things that has happened with social media is what's called context collapse. This is one of the amazing, generative, wonderful, creative, amazing things about social media in that it's a space where people are talking to friends and talking to the general public. They're making in-jokes while they're also talking about uh, politics. It's all mixed together, and in some ways, it makes this really, really interesting space for uh, discourse, and there's more. You can access more conversations than you could otherwise. You don't have to be at the water cooler. You don't have to be at the kitchen table. You can see conversations between friends more easily. This is one of the things I loved about Twitter. I was a Twitter lurker for a long time. Oh, you didn't actually tweet. I, you didn't I, actually tweet. Um, at a certain point, when I got tenure, hmm. I did start tweeting. I'm sorry we intimidated you so much. You know. <laughs> yeah, I just wasn't sure. I mean, these uh, constraints, I think, can be real, can feel real. But I looked before, and I would, you know, sometimes I felt like a bit of a coward for not tweeting. But I also came to think that that's a valuable way to participate on Twitter also, because there's all the stuff that is really interesting to see. But it does mean that these previously private spheres and spaces now seem much less private, right? And are less in your control. So particularly when you're in an environment where everyone doesn't have the same view of whether they should stay private or not, it can be scary. And this is on top of an incredible, you know, I don't think we should not talk about this in this episode, incredibly polarized political environment, which is driving a lot of this. I think it's absolutely not just social media or technology or the rules about speech, it's the politics in which there is, you know, increase, incredible disagreement and tribalism by and among members of the political community that can be weaponized to take down individual people or become part of that. And so I agree. I think it is very disconcerting and hard to make sense of. Because on the one hand, you know, this is the University of Chicago. We believe in free speech and expression. And part of that is a commitment to a certain kind of publicity and transparency and openness to the outside world. But on the other hand, certain kinds of speech only flourishes certain kinds of thought and exploration only flourishes under conditions of intimacy or privacy or safety. This is why I've always been very opposed from a free speech perspective to the anti-safe spaces rhetoric, because mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly reductive. 
Safe spaces can be incredibly speech promoting because when you're with trusted friends or when you're in a safe space, you can try out new ideas. You can say stupid things in a way that you would never say if you're being televised on the national news. And so a certain amount of privacy can be incredibly useful and important. And then you can take whatever ideas you figured out in your two hour hash session with your friends in which you said five incredibly stupid things. You can say the one smart thing you figured out after two hours and then you can take it to the public sphere and that can be very useful. And the, I guess the, the threat uh, at this institution where we've always understood classrooms as uh, maybe my students will not understand them in this way, but somewhat safe spaces in which there's a certain kind of intimacy. It's not the same kind of intimacy you have at the kitchen table or with your best friends, but it's, it's a community that is trying to figure things out together. That's being uh, undermined and it produces an environment in which I think uh, students are afraid to speak. Professors are afraid to express their opinions. Everyone's a little bit afraid, and I think it is stifling the quality of classroom conversation. The phrase I sometimes hear is brave space, which is what we need, but it requires a certain amount of safety in order to have that, right? And I, so it's, you don't like that phrase. I hate that. I oh, really? Say. Okay. No, and it's a big I'll part of... I'll tell my daughter. <laughs> well, it's a big part of uh, the free speech ideology at the, at the school, at the University of Chicago. You know, in the, the Stone Report, our sort of most important, uh, certainly most recent document laying out our free expression principles... There is, I think, a lot of gesturing towards, and this is coming out of the American First Amendment tradition, this idea of being brave and being willing to, you know, take the slings and arrows of criticism. And there's certainly something to be said for that. You know, bravery is a great quality, but it's just not the only quality that generates or is associated with exploration and life of the mind. It works better for some people than for others and for some kinds of position speakers than others. And so I just would like um, a view of free speech that recognizes the diversity of spaces and contexts in which expression can flourish. We need brave spaces, we also need safe spaces. We need public spaces, we need semi-private spaces. We need all of these different kinds of speech environments to have a, and I think we always have had, even while we haven't really talked about it, because we've been able to assume privacy, intimacy, safety in certain ways, even while we've been talking about bravery and publicity and openness. And so, uh, you know, one way to think about what's happening now is we're now having to think about the value of the, what we always took for granted, which is the ivory towerness of the ivory tower, the fact that we're, we have historically been secluded in some ways that have enabled a lot of exploration and creativity, and that's going away, and I think we're feeling the costs. Yeah, I mean, my w one sort of line in the sand is we can't let that kind of thing stop us from teaching courses. That is when we're really giving up on our core mission. What kind of threat to safety are you willing to right and to, that, to withstand? You know, and how much what, thinking about the costs of free speech? How much can and should we want universities to expand on security and protection for their instructors? You know, at some point we need to be brave, right? We have to maybe develop you know better security systems and such. But if if you let bullies hamper inquiry then we're all doomed. There's a lot of pretty serious problems out there and probably an in, that we need to solve and probably an infinite number of idiots willing to issue death threats, which, you mm -hmm. know, it's just cheap talk. And, um, mm -hmm. But we have to obviously be prepared in case there's real threats. But otherwise, what are we doing if we're not going to tackle those hard problems, precisely the most controversial ones? You know, I think uh, it'd be great to get some questions from all of you. I'm particularly interested in a, a student views on all of these things we've been discussing. Um, so if you have a question, raise your hand and uh, um, our producer, Matt, will bring you a mic. Uh, at least given the sort of history of the university, the Walgreen affair, which began this entire sort of um, commitment to free speech at the university, 
it seems like criticism, external criticism of the university for pursuing free inquiry is nothing new. The Walgreen Fair was, um, I believe the cause of it was assigning socialist readings um, in a political theory class uh, in the 1930s. So my question is, what exactly are the specific harms uh, you see in social media that were not present beforehand? Of course, like you've discussed the sort of many-to-many style of communication uh, that can lead to more uh, of a mob reaction than would have been previously handled. You know, um, the Walgreen affair ended in a, a state inquiry, which perhaps has more of a veneer of officiality behind it compared to a, a Twitter mob. But when I think of um, the harms of social media in chilling free speech on campus, I, I would have to ask how do those differ from the conventional means of chilling free speech on campus, either through mass media or through just conventional discourse? I mean, I guess I would just say, well, first of all, good point. <laughs> again, social media is maybe only intensifying or illuminating or making us think again about problems that have long existed. And it is true, the concept of academic freedom and the modern regime, most of it privately administered, but not all of it, that tries to protect the ability of professors and students to speak and think and write as they want on campus, was developed in response to the real threat from state legislatures and then also from really powerful millionaires, I guess not billionaires at the time, but millionaires, to try and get socialists, mostly socialists and anarchists, out of the universities. This is in the late 19th century, and this real fear about this kind of the excise are this kind of powerful uh, political and economic force against the universities. And so we shouldn't be nostalgic, overly nostalgic about the past. There were lots of threats to free expression on campus in that time. But of course, also today we still have those threats. So things like the Florida legislation that is trying to restrict uh, what happens at universities and, and schools, or the threat to strip tenure that's going on and in some cases being enacted in states across the country. So we are still seeing that kind of thing. But on top of that, we also have, I suppose, democratized threats, mob threats, threats that are now being able to be made um, not just by powerful e economic and political elites, but by anyone who has a facility with Twitter or Blue Sky. And so I think that makes them just much more omnipresent. You know, I think... Uh, in the late 19th century, there was a very pronounced threat against radicals. And uh, maybe more, in some ways, more than today. You know, So the freedom of speech for radical socialists, anarchists, at the late 19th, early 20th century, including in American uh, uh, universities, was very pronounced, uh, profound, and we shouldn't uh, disregard that. But now it's not just, it's not limited in that way. It can be anyone who has a beef with anything lefty or snowflakey or wokey, or maybe overly conservative, uh, racist or sexist, uh, that you say. And so I think the omnipresence of it just changes the character maybe, makes you worried all the time. And then I just there's also the fact that it's threats of violence. I think particularly against people of color and women, these threats, they, they're probably not real. They're, pro they're probably not. But they might be. You know, I have a friend who published a paper, uh, article, she's a bioethicist, she published something on Slate. Uh, I, you know, really interesting, not terribly controversial, but she got threats in the mail and has vowed never to publish publicly in that way again. And it's just because, you know, you have kids, you have a family, who knows what could happen? And so I think it is the violent nature of the threats that is really hard to handle. Yeah, I mean, of course, to issue a threat like that is a crime. Right, and so the problem yeah. is that the social media, it can be a crime. And the problem with the social media, of course, is that there's so much of it, there's no possible way we'd ever have enough enforcement to uh, deal with that, um, to sort of, uh, really to try to deter it. 
I mean, you could imagine maybe what we could do is, you know, find the URL of the, you know, the, the what's the, the web, the address, I can't remember the technical term, I'm so old, um, you know, of the person who, the IP address of the person who, um, you know, issued the threat and sort of prosecute them or sue them for civil damage. We could do that, but you're never going to be able to do enough of that to really make a difference. So other questions or comments? Um, hi, I have wanted to uh, just complicate this discussion a little bit further by bringing in other countries. Like we know that, so the free speech and more speech discussion that we were having earlier, I don't know how to what extent this works in the US, but in India and China, you can obfuscate, I guess, truth via just more speech. And so if you just flood the, like flood Twitter or WhatsApp or whatever it is, with just more speech, that might just not be the solution that we are, uh, that is often uh, purported. And the other thing is just with new technology like ChatGPT, other like generative AI things, we have ways of generating more speech. So how do we think about free speech when we have so much speech? That's a great question. But again, I'll just say to continue my theme, also in some ways not a new question. So there's this really important debate in the mid 20th century in US free speech jurisprudence about whether free speech requires everyone who can speak to speak or just requires the ideas that need to be said or the perspectives that need to be represented to, to, to participate because of this worry about flooding the zone. And I guess uh, I appreciate that comment because it complicates our conversation about democratization. Because on the one hand, we might say social media has democratized access to the public sphere in this very simple sense in that it has made it easier for people to participate they don't have to go through the New York Times editor or some other gatekeeper in order to speak to a mass audience. But when we think about democracy, we think about a system of representation where whatever the speech produced in the public sphere is, it's somehow representative of the people at large. You know, and that's a complicated question about whether that is in fact the case because one of the beefs, one of the critiques of social media in the US but everywhere, I think, is that it's manipulable. And everyone who speaks doesn't have the same reach or amplitude and the social media companies have a for-profit reason to be promoting certain kinds of voices in certain kinds of ways. And now you have malicious actors who are going to be exploiting these features of the environment to produce a world in which it looks like 90% of the people think the you know, 2016 election was stolen, but in fact, if you survey Americans using other means, it's gonna look very different. And so the speech we have, it's democratized in a way, but it's not representative in any kind of meaningful sense. I think that's true, ha has always been a problem <laughs> with a free speech world in which you know, powerful actors can use their economic and political and social power to flood the zone in a sense, but it's like everything else, maybe easier or more obvious, uh, more of a problem uh, today. And there's no doubt that governments are also heavily involved in these propaganda wars where they're using bots or private speakers to amplify, disaggregate their message so it seems like it's coming from everywhere. And that, that's a real problem. You know, the social media companies are work, they are trying to figure out ways to combat, you know, coordinated inauthentic behavior or this kind of um, collaboration to deceive or manipulate or exploit the weaknesses of the information environment. I don't know how successful that's been. doesn't seem terribly successful. But it does mean that, um, you know, I think a lot of thought needs to be put into how do you design an, a speech environment in which it's not only that people have access to the ability to participate, but the speech that you have that as a participant, uh, the speech that is being circulated is representative of actual human beings and more uh, a broad, you know, is not so completely dis 
located from, different from what people in the real world are actually thinking and doing and saying. So, you know, one easy fix is to limit the ability of governments to influence, to use these kinds of deceptive tactics. But, you know, in theory, but in practice, that's very hard to do. But I think the thoughts about the architecture of the social media platforms, it's an area where I think we need to be doing a lot more thinking so that it's not just that, in theory, can you participate in the public sphere, but can your voice also be heard? Yeah, I think it's a big question. I thought it was a great question. And I think of the India problem and the China problem as being very different. So China is a much more conventional, you know, government controls the architecture. They've got all kinds of tools. And so that's sort of, you know, uh, dystopian and pretty easy to understand. But the India one is maybe a better analogy for our situation. Because basically what you have is a social movement, the RSS, which is kind of like not only got the government in pocket or is aligned with the government, but really mobilizes private mobs. Uh, if someone criticizes Modi, all of a sudden they're they're going to get you know WhatsApp groups will show up at their door and you know Twitter uh, attacks and of course journalists being uh, sometimes killed and and such certainly intimidated. So that's a kind of a social movement as I see it and more analogous to our situation. And I think we ought to be thinking really actively about how you counter such things um, in our environment so we don't become that. <laughs> Maybe this will be the last question. Uh, so I know you mentioned you have uh, large support for these safe spaces in like more personal settings, but it, uh, it is not a new idea. Is like anonymous writers and newspapers have been a thing since writing's been invented. But this idea of having being able to stay in a safe space while uh, branching out into the public world is becoming more and more prevalent. Do you hold the same value on that as you do in like a? in a safe space in the setting where you're, there's that intimacy? Or do you think that there should, is less value to that once it gets into the public sphere? Oh, I just think there should be a variety of different kinds of speech environments. And I think like as a purely descriptive matter, we already have that. And, and you know what they look like is transforming. I think we should not be overly idealistic about what the public sphere typically looks like. Most of the time when you're engaging in public address, you're speaking to a select group of a, a particular kind of audience. And so there's always certain kinds of intimacy or privacy or have been, even when we're thinking about what's formally public address usually, and now with a like heavily tribal world, that's often gonna be the case. You know, you can go out into the public world, but if you're in a particular location, it's very likely that the people you're interacting with are gonna have a lot of similar views as you. And so even there, you know, it's not a representative sampling of all humans on the planet or even humans in America. I think, uh, but of course, social media has uh, made it easier to have these kinds of niche publics in the middle of what looks like, you know, a diverse set of speech environments. And I think that can be good, and then that can be taken too far. So I think certain kinds of safety or intimacy are really valuable, as I said. Uh, but I also think it can be dangerous to only be speaking to people who already agree with you. And so you would maybe want to mix it up. And one of the things I've liked about the traditional construction of the classroom is that I think it's in between. It's not the kitchen table. It's not, you know, just you and your three best friends um, saying whatever crazy things you want to say and not getting any pushback because you all basically agree and that's why you're friends. But it's also not the speaker's corner in the park in which you can get feedback from anybody. It's in between. There's a set of ground rules. There's a set of speech norms that the professor's hopefully going to, you know, help you figure out or impose. You could have a community, the classroom develop it. You got a thing, set of things you're supposed to be talking about and you have a different range of ideas and opinions in the class. 
but it's within this bounded world. And I think that that's great. I think it's good to have these very intimate safe spaces. I think it's good to have these very public spaces. I think it's good to have these in-betweens. The worry, I guess, the thing that you, your question was uh, asking about is whether, what do we think about a public world in which that's all you have? You're always speaking, right? I think to your, what is it, your, your bubble, um, your, um, the people who agree with you. And I think that can be dangerous. Uh, I think it can be dangerous no matter who you are and how you do it because there's no one going to challenge you. And so, you know, it's not that I'm totally unsympathetic to this idea of brave spaces. I just think it can be taken too far. And the valorization of this is the only way in which you can be respectful of, or encouraging of free speech just seems to be misguided and just not accurate description of how humans actually come up with ideas and speak. It's a great note to end on. Thank you all for your attention. And um, please listen to the podcast entitled, There's Cards Outside with the Details and Plenty of Swag. Entitled is a part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network and is produced with the support of Yale and University of Chicago Law Schools. Our show is produced by Matt Hodup and Leah Sisreen. Thanks for listening.